Glass is one of the most important materials that has enabled modern human civilization. And, and it has transformed civilization in so many ways. And we are still at the beginning. Welcome to It's a Material World, the show that uncovers why material science will change the world. With your hosts, Tom Miller and Puneet Upadhyay. Hi, everyone. Today's guest on the show is Dr. John Morrow, a world-renowned expert in glass science and a professor in material science and engineering at Penn State University. He is also an inventor of new commercial glasses, including various Corning Gorilla Glass products. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Morrow. Oh, thank you, Tom. Thank you, Puneet. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. <laughs> and so just to get started here, at a high level, what are the characteristics that define glass from a material science perspective? So glass is a very interesting material. You know, as, as humans and as scientists, we have a tendency to want to classify things, right? And we normally think of the, the three standard phases of matter, solid, liquid, and gas. And glass is interesting because it falls somewhere in between solid and liquid. So if you look at it at the atomic scale, the atomic structure of glass is very much like a liquid. It has a well-defined short range order, a less well-defined intermediate range order, and then a complete lack of long range order. So it's completely disordered at um, a longer length scale, which is in contrast to solid materials that are made of crystals. But if you were to say tap on a glass, it, it certainly behaves mechanically like a solid. If you drop it, it will break like a solid material. And so it has some of the properties of a solid, but with some of the properties in the atomic structure that are more akin to a liquid. So it, it's falling somewhere in between and it also has its own unique properties. So unlike equilibrium liquids and equilibrium crystalline solids, glass is an out of equilibrium material or a non-equilibrium material. And so you can't find it anywhere on a traditional thermodynamic phase diagram because it's not an equilibrium material. And in fact, if you wait over long periods of time, it is slowly relaxing towards either the liquid state or eventually it will crystallize. So glass is also interesting in that it's a transient state of matter. If you wait long enough, it won't exist anymore. <laughs> but presumably when you say wait long enough, we're talking about time scales that humans would never be able to potentially see depending on what that glass material is. So it, it depends on the glass, and you're exactly right. And the time scale that you would need to wait could vary by many orders of magnitude. So for most common glasses, that time scale is longer than the age of the universe. So you have to be very patient. <laughs> very, very patient. That's a level of, uh, it's an attention span that I don't think I would necessarily have, but, but good to know nonetheless. <laughs> and we had a full episode about ceramics, and we learned that there's some technical dispute over whether glass is considered to be a subset of this broader class of ceramics materials or something else different entirely. So can you talk about why that might be the case? 
Uh, absolutely. And that's a great question, too. So a ceramic is any inorganic, non-metallic material. So inorganic, meaning it's not based on carbon, oxygen, and hydrogen, and non-metallic, meaning that it's it's not a metal. So the ceramics uh, encompass a very broad range of materials from you know diamonds to table saws, and including many common glasses as well. So uh, if you were to ask someone in the public just to think of a glass, the glasses that they would think of are typically sodalime silicate glass or borosilicate glass like Pyrex or pure silica. You know, all of these commonly known glasses are, are silicate glasses and silicates are inorganic non-metallic materials and therefore are classified as ceramics. Now, there is a, another newer family of glasses called metallic glasses and these are based on metallic alloys. And so they're metals that are mixed up in such a way that when they're cooled from the molten state, they are unable to form a crystal because the, the atoms are so frustrated, they're not able to, to rearrange themselves in a crystalline configuration. And therefore what you have is this solid-like material with a liquid-like structure, but where the atoms are, have metallic bonding. And therefore the, this is what's called a metallic glass. So this is an example of a glass that is not a ceramic. There are also many organic glasses. Uh, so you may have seen, for example, the sugar glasses that are used in movies when you see the actors you know, crashing through the windows. Those are not <laughs> silicate glasses. Those are, are made out of, of sugar. And so that's an example of an organic glass. And by the way, why does glass always have to suffer so much in movies? <laughs> It's carnage. Every time a glass breaks, a piece of my heart breaks too. <laughs> I didn't know that about the sugar glass thing in movies. I mean, that's definitely not my expertise area. I didn't realize like every action scene when they're like, you know, busting through a window, it's actually glass sugar instead. Yeah, it's a lot easier on the actors that way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. So those glass breaking bottles or whatever, is that sugar glass too? The ones that like break super easily on people's head in those those movies. <laughs> oh gosh. Depends on how much depends on how much brain damage. <laughs> um, so they I, I'm not sure what they're doing with that. They they might also purposely put a large flaw into the bottle so it breaks more easily. Because if, if you've got like a, a pre-cracked specimen that acts to intensify the stresses and make it a, a lot easier to to crack. So that's another option, or, or maybe they're wearing a special hat to protect themselves. <laughs> Kids, don't try this at home. <laughs> yes, good disclaimer there. Cool, cool. So from a broader perspective, can you give us some examples of the applications of glass and which sectors they are most commonly used in? Uh, absolutely. So glass is a ubiquitous material. It's it's all around us in our everyday lives. You know, when you think about your, your house or your school building or office building, you know, the glass windows allow sunlight to come in while keeping out, uh, you know, the harsh cold of winter or the snow since it's Jan January here in central Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's something that's it's so common. We, we don't really think that much about it because we're not really looking at the glass. We're looking through the glass. But could you imagine architecture without 
glass windows. It, it would be rather depressing. There's also, you know, when you go to the grocery store, glass jars that are used. And I don't know if you've compared like um, juice that you could buy at the grocery store that is packaged in glass bottles versus plastic bottles. What do you notice? That the glass bottles are always in the non-refrigerated section because it provides a you know, much better protection of the juice compared to the plastic bottles, which are stored in the refrigerated section because they will go bad much more easily. So there's you know, glass packaging for uh, for food. There's the glasses that you you drink out of at the dinner table. There's glasses that are used for pharmaceutical packaging. So, one of the things that we've seen a lot on the news with respect to COVID nineteen and the current pandemic is the vaccine and the rollout of the vaccine. And one of the issues that needs to be addressed is not just the vaccine itself but how do you package and how do you store that vaccine? So we need to have you know, large quantities, tens of millions of these pharmaceutical vials that are made out of specialty glasses to be able to safely store the vaccine without having chemical reactions between the glass packaging and the vaccine, to have the mechanical strength to withstand mechanical damage and to be able to, to cool down to extremely low temperatures to be able to safely store the vaccine and not have breakage due to thermal expansion issues. We also see glass in information technology. So, uh, you know, we're looking at each other now via glass screens. And so glass is used for the display of information. And that goes back to the old cathode ray tube displays, the old style TVs and monitors, and to the modern flat panel displays. And as we're talking to each other, all of that information is being transmitted over glass optical fibers. So these are, are long, thin strands of, of glass that are, you know, have about the thickness of a human hair. And they are propagating just you know, billions and billions of bits of, of information every second and delivering it with extremely low error rates. And so glass has been critical in bringing us into the information age, both in the communication of information, as well as the display of, of information. So, you know, glass is, is everywhere around us in our everyday lives, and, and oftentimes we're using it without even thinking about it. Wow. You know, we talked earlier about transportation as an application. I'm kind of just racking through my brain trying to think of what you could mean by that. So could you give us some examples of glass in the transportation area? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's another critical application of glass. So when you consider, say, the, the cockpit in an airplane and the pilots have to be able to, to see out and at the same time, you know, the cockpit, the, the glass there has to be able to withstand, say, the impact from a bird or, or something like that without you know, sacrificing the integrity of the window. And so those are made out of thick, chemically strengthened glass, which is the same type of technology that is used, for example, in the Gorilla Glass that's on the cover of your cell phone, but in a, a much thicker variation. So in airplanes and obviously in, in cars and other automobiles as well, uh, we need to be able to see out of our vehicles to be able to drive them safely and at the same time keep us protected from you know, stones that are flying up or, or something else bad that, that might happen. Trains as well. Uh, what about the space shuttle? And rocket ships. So there, you know, the windows in the space shuttle have to be able to withstand extremely high temperatures, especially upon re-entry. 
those windows are made out of pure silica because that can withstand the highest temperatures of, of any of the commonly used glasses. And it's interesting because when we think about trends in transportation, one of the, the trends going forward is the rise of autonomous vehicles. And there, what we're going to see is that glass is going to play uh, an increasingly important role in the interiors of cars, as well as, as the, the usual windshields, because if you're not driving, you need to be doing something else. So there's going to be screens there that will be able to provide you with information or entertainment or access to you know, your email or whatever it is people will want to do when they're, they're riding in the car and uh, not having to actively drive it. Yeah, I think we're seeing that with the new Tesla cars. That's that's like larger screens in the middle, and you can just play games on it. Yeah, those are awesome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When when the gas is filling up, you can play Hangman and stuff like that. It's, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> you know, before a lot of our episodes, we like to solicit questions from our audience uh, about some of the topics we're about to go into with the various experts that we bring onto the show. Today's question comes from one of our audience members named Rohit. And he was curious, what is the most surprising application for glass that you have seen so far in your career? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I'd say the most surprising application that I've seen is some glass that has uh, recently been developed to help with soft tissue repair in the human body. So this is something that was uh, developed out of Missouri at Missouri University of Science and Technology and commercialized by a startup company there called Mosai. And this is glass fiber, kind of kind of like the, the fiberglass that's used in your insulation in homes. But it's instead of being based on a silicate glass, it's based on a borate glass. So the, the chemical formula is B2O3. And borate glasses have not traditionally been used because they, they soak up water from the atmosphere, they degrade very easily. But in this case, what these scientists discovered is that if you make these uh, borate glass fibers, you can pack them into open flesh wounds, either in animals or in humans, and the fibrous microstructure acts as um, kind of a, a pathway to help the body's natural healing process, which is sort of healing in a, a fibrous type of, of format. The glasses will dissolve over the course of a few days. And as they're dissolved, they're releasing elements that help the body repair itself. And at the same time, they're providing for an antimicrobial environment to help prevent uh, an infection from forming. And then every few days, you get a new set of fibers packed into the wound. And then over the course of a few weeks, the flesh has healed. And remarkably, there's little to no scarring at the end of this. And this is amazing because these wounds that, that this has been shown effective at healing are in, for example, um, many diabetic patients have, have these wounds that are, are very deep and they can be as deep as going down to the bone and they simply don't heal. But this, this type of borate glass fiber actually helps even those wounds heal by stimulating the body's natural healing process. So these were first approved for use in the veterinary market. And more recently, uh, it has been approved for use in humans as well. So this is, is now available for patients who are suffering from these types of wounds. Wow, that's incredible. So you mentioned that it dissolves on like a short-term scale to release the, the things that can aid the healing process. How do you facilitate that short-term process when, you know, some other glasses kind of have that more of the long-term degradation scale? 
So that's a great question, Puneet. And the corrosion resistance of glass depends very strongly on its chemical composition. Uh, in many of the traditional applications of glass, such as glass windows or, or glass packaging, we specifically want glass to have a very high corrosion resistance. So it's not going to you know, dissolve in rain or acid rain, or if you put highly acidic or highly basic liquid into a glass container, we need to make sure that glass is not going to corrode. And those glasses have a high concentration of silica. So silica, SiO2, is known for its very high corrosion resistance. In these borate glasses, there's no silica. So all of the silica has been replaced by boron oxide, B2O3. And that is much more hygroscopic, meaning it wants to react with water. And as those reactions take place, the elements get released from the glass and uh, the glass corrodes a lot more quickly. And so if, if you change the chemical composition of the glass so that it's a borate glass rather than a silicate glass, then it will dissolve a lot more rapidly. And that's what you know, these scientists have done in the development of this wound healing fiber. That's super fascinating. Yeah, so you had mentioned that this technique for wound healing also had antimicrobial properties of some sort. So, you know, how does that play into it? You know, as material scientists, we get kind of introduced that certain metals have antimicrobial properties, but how does that work in this application? Um, that's right. And it's so certain metals do have antimicrobial properties. For example, silver and copper are have very good antimicrobial properties. And those can be added to the borate glass fibers to help enhance the, the antimicrobial activity. It seems that even high concentrations of borate itself may also lead to antimicrobial effects. But your, your question brings up uh, another new application above glass, and that is antimicrobial touchscreens. So one of the, the glasses that I'd, I'd spent a, a large part of my career working on was the various Gorilla Glass compositions from Corning. And some of the newer Gorilla Glasses are actually ion exchanged with silver ions, meaning that they can load the surface of the glass with silver ions. And if silver is exposed to a humid environment, so it's going to diffuse out from the glass and into the, onto the surface, silver will attack bacteria. It may even have antiviral applications against some virals and antifungal applications. Uh, so it's a very effective antimicrobial agent. And this is uh, you know, especially important, for example, during this COVID-19 pandemic, you know, if there are common touch screens, whether it's like an ATM touch screen or anything where you've got multiple people touching the screen, or if it's in say a hospital environment, and you really need to help prevent the spread of secondary infections because you go into the hospital to heal, not to get infected with something else. And so having antimicrobial surfaces like this um, silver ion exchanged Gorilla Glass can help improve human health by uh, preventing the spread or reducing the spread of secondary infections. Yeah, I didn't even think about the ATM or the hospital settings where those antimicrobial properties are needed. So let's actually dive into that. You know, we are a material science podcast and you do have these vast experiences with Corning's Gorilla Glass. So can you talk more about the material science that's involved in the development of various Corning Gorilla Glasses? Absolutely. So Gorilla Glass is an alkali aluminosilicate glass. 
And the way that it gets its high strength is through a process called the ion exchange process, or also known as a chemical strengthening process. Now, when Gorilla Glass is made, uh, initially it contains a large concentration of a small alkali ion, either lithium ions or sodium ions. And if you take this glass and then submerge it in a molten salt bath, uh, this is around 400 degrees C for a few hours, uh, where that molten salt bath contains a larger cation. So if it's a lithium glass, you could use uh, a salt that is a sodium-based salt or a potassium-based salt. Or if it's a sodium glass, you'd use a potassium salt. So you submerge the glass in this molten salt bath and diffusion happens, right? So the, the smaller ions will leave the glass and get replaced by the larger cations from the salt. This leads to a concentration profile of these larger ions going into the surface of the glass. Now, potassium is potassium one plus that has the same charge as the sodium one plus cation. So from a charge point of view, in order to maintain charge neutrality, it's just a one for one exchange. Every sodium ion gets replaced by a single potassium ion. But potassium, since it's larger than sodium, doesn't quite fit into the same um, structural location as the sodium. It actually wants to expand because it's larger, but the interior part of the glass doesn't let it expand. And so the, the surface of the glass wants to expand, but the interior of the glass doesn't let it expand. And so that leads to stresses. And specifically, that leads to a compressive stress being developed in the surface of the glass that's balanced by a, a tensile stress in the interior of the glass. Now, with a gorilla glass, the compressive stress at the surface of the glass is on the order of about one gigapascal. Wow. And so if you want to yeah, if, if you want to break Gorilla Glass, you have to overcome not only the intrinsic strength of the glass itself, but also this extra one gigapascal compressive stress at the surface. And, and that's what makes it so strong. That is one heck of a compressive stress. That's like one of those things that keeps coming up in our material science curriculum is like the Gorilla Glass process. And just even learning more about it through this context really makes me realize, oh yeah, that's really a fascinating thing to keep emphasizing to material science students. Yeah, there's a, a lot of, of interesting aspects for a material scientist. So one of them is, say, the composition design. So how do you design the chemistry of the Gorilla Glass to be able to manufacture it profitably at a large scale and get the high strength properties that you're looking for? How do you manufacture it in these large flat sheets that can reach the thinness that's required for personal electronic devices and do so with uh, uniformity of the thinness without any types of defects? And then how do you optimize this ion exchange process for doing the chemical strengthening? So there's all types of materials design and process design questions that are just really fascinating, uh, especially from a, a material science and engineering point of view. So Dr. Morrow, one major application of glass that has helped the information age is fiber optics. So can you talk about how the glass materials were developed to make this technology possible? 
Great question, Puneet. So uh, the key breakthrough in the development of optical fiber actually came in 1970 at Corning. So three scientists there, Keck, Maurer, and Schultz, who they won the, the National Medal of Technology for this breakthrough. What they realized is that in order to develop glass that is pure enough that you can transmit optical signals over hundreds of kilometers, you need to reduce the optical attenuation at those wavelengths that are, are being used for telecommunication. So at the wavelengths where the lasers are, are generating the light, the optical attenuation or the optical absorption has to be minimized in the glass. Now, the primary enemy is water because water has absorption at exactly the same wavelengths that are used in telecommunications. So they realized that in order to enable this application, they had to get rid of the water. And the key breakthrough was actually a process breakthrough. They used a, a process called outside vapor deposition, which is a, making the glass via a chemical reaction rather than using the normal uh, melt-quench point of view. So uh, you know, if you want to make silica glass, the most natural thing to do would be to dig up some quartz and melt the quartz and cool it down into glass. And yes, you will get silica glass that way, but it's going to have a lot of water in it. It's going to have sodium impurities. It's going to have iron and chromium. It's going to have all types of junk in there. And all of that leads to optical absorption. So in order to reach these high levels of, of Purity. What they did was use a chemical vapor deposition process where they reacted uh, silicon tetrachloride with oxygen in a completely water-free environment. And that produced chlorine gas and SiO2 soot. And they deposited this pure SiO2 soot, the silica soot, onto a target rod that was spinning. And basically they, they built up the soot and then put that through a subsequent heat treatment step where the soot was consolidated down into the solid glass, which was the, the highest purity um, glass that had ever been made. Wow. And then this, this is what's called a preform. And then the preform is tipped up vertically, and then they would heat the tip of the preform and then draw that down into fiber. And that, that's how the, the first fiber for telecommunications had been made. And in fact, if you go to the Corning Museum of Glass, which I highly recommend, it's in Corning, New York, you can see Don Keck's lab notebook when he made the first measurement that reached the low optical attenuation that was required for telecommunications. And he famously wrote whoopee right across his lab notebook. He was so <laughs> excited. And you know, it created a whole new industry. It brought, it changed society because it brought us into the information age. And uh, yeah, it's it's amazing and a very inspirational story. That's incredible. So that seems like a very much research project. How do you industrialize that? How do you manufacture that on a larger scale? Great question. There are um, a number of steps that are involved with, with manufacturing of optical fiber. There is the uh, initial soot deposition. So that involves having you know, the oxygen-free environment for doing this reaction between silicon tetrachloride and oxygen, depositing the soot. 
The next step is this consolidation step where the, the soot collapses into a fully densified glass. The next step is the fiber draw process. And that's really cool because you know that takes place in a building that's a few stories high because you need a lot of vertical space for, for drawing the fiber. The fiber as it's drawn is coated with a protective polymer coating to, to just give it some additional mechanical resistance and corrosion resistance. And then that polymer coated fiber is spooled at the bottom of the draw into a spool, just like you're using a sewing machine, only bigger. Then the next step is, is called cabling because it's not just a single optical fiber that, that gets used for, for transmitting optical signals. Many optical fibers, like 100 or more optical fibers, are put together into a cable. And each one of the fibers is in a protective sheath. It's all color-coded, so you know which fiber is which at, at each end. And they all get put together in this, this large cable. And then the next part is really hard as well, and that's the installation of the cable. Yeah. <laughs> so this, this, you know, it can involve for... Um, terrestrial networks uh, burying the cable. So you've got to dig up a trench and bury it. Or for transcontinental networks, this would involve you know, installing it across the bottom of the ocean. So that is a very expensive step. <laughs> wow. No, it sounds like a, a lot of challenges involved, but obviously the payoff is enabling us to have this, this information age that we oh so lovingly take for granted now. Absolutely. <laughs> We had mentioned this earlier that there seems to be this merging potential in terms of glass applications in healthcare. And so moving forward, where do you see glass playing a role within the biomedical field? Right. So I, I think we can consider it as glass packaging for one thing. So, you know, as as the development of, of vaccines and other medicines is, is proceeding more rapidly, we need to make sure that there is appropriate packaging for those medicines. And they can present some extreme chemical environments. So, you know, highly acidic or highly basic pHs. We have to make sure that they don't react with the glass at all. So the, the whole area of pharmaceutical packaging is extremely important. So for example, my advisor, uh, Arun Varshneya, started a company called Saxon Glass Technologies. And you probably know the, the EpiPen that is used to, to supply medicine for people who have extreme allergic reactions. And you know, many people's lives have been saved by these EpiPens. And every EpiPen contains a, a glass syringe that has extremely high strength. So it has been ion exchanged in a process similar to what I, I just described for Gorilla Glass, only it's in a, a vial form rather than a, a flat sheet. All of those ion exchanges are done at my advisor's company, Saxon Glass Technologies. And the, these advanced glass technologies were able to take EpiPens from being a product where you know there, there might have been some failures without this this process, which would have I mean that could even cost people's lives, to now having no known failures um, after making use of this chemical strengthening or ion exchange process. Wow! Um, so that that's an example of kind of these these cutting edge both materials technologies as well as process technologies and you know, providing a real benefit for um, people all over the world. Another area is, is glasses that are being used to help repair or protect the human body. We already discussed uh, glasses, these glass fibers for soft tissue repair. Glasses and glass ceramics are also used throughout the dentistry 
industry for tooth repairs, for example. Glass ceramics are, are replacing metals because they can match the same coloration as the human teeth. So you know, if you get a, a glass ceramic filling or tooth replacement, it's going to be very difficult to tell that apart from a natural human tooth. And it's also going to have the high hardness, the high toughness, the high corrosion resistance, just like natural teeth. Glass powders are also being used in toothpaste. So they're, they're being incorporated into some toothpaste now so that these glass powders can help rebuild some of your natural enamel on your teeth to take care of dentin hypersensitivity, for example. Glasses and glass ceramics are also used uh, to help with bone repair. So they can provide uh, the high mechanical strength that is needed for bones and actually help to stimulate the natural regrowth of bone tissue as well. So glasses are, are used in, in hard tissue repair as well as soft tissue repair and throughout the body. And I think one of the exciting things is to discover in the future you know, what other roles can glass play to you know, help with, with these medical issues. That's amazing. So there's so many different applications, even within the healthcare space for glass. What are the challenges that researchers are facing at the moment in terms of glass packaging, but also glass repair? Oh, gosh, so many challenges, right? So it goes from, you know, understanding the relationship between the glass chemistry and the, the response that you're trying to get from, say, the human body, because you know, both are so complicated. Glass is very complicated, but the human body is, is, of course, exponentially more complicated. And how can you design the glass to trigger the response that you want to get in the human body? And it's just such a complicated problem that you know, a lot of it is, is done based on what previous research has found and kind of taking steps from there or through experimental trial and error. And so if we can you know, design studies to really understand what is going on at the chemical level and at the physical level and, and what leads to either getting or not getting the desired biological response. That's a, a major challenge. So, you know, that's the healthcare space. So let's move on to architecture applications. You, you mentioned if there was buildings without glass, it would just be a very dull world that we're living in. So currently what work is being done in developing new glass materials for architecture applications and what benefits could come from this development? So one of the challenges in architecture is how to make your buildings as energy efficient as possible. So, you know, we want to keep them warm in the winter, keep them cool in the summer. And, you know, windows are, are great for, for letting the light in and, and providing good thermal insulation. But there's still room for improvement, even with, you know, modern double pane windows that are filled with a, a noble gas in, in between the two panes, you know, they can still act to conduct heat. And one of the advances is, is what's called vacuum insulated glazing. And this is, instead of having a noble gas between the two panes of glass, you would actually uh, pull a vacuum between. So there's, there's 
you know, literally nothing there. <laughs> uh, so the only the only way to to you know transmit the heat would be radiatively. And so if you have a vacuum in between the panes, the challenges are how do you make sure that that vacuum is maintained over the lifetime of the building? So that's decades worth of time. Also, if you're pulling a vacuum, that creates mechanical stresses on the two panes of glass. And how do you make sure that that the glasses can withstand those stresses and also be plane parallel to each other? So those are, are some of the challenges. Another area in architecture is natural lighting. So how could we take more advantage of natural sunlighting and, and transmit that natural sunlighting even to interior rooms, for example? That would reduce the need for artificial lighting, give us a, a more natural spectrum of light to work with, and also reduce the associated energy costs. So those are a couple of the areas. Another one is glasses that are used for photovoltaics. Of course, more and more people are putting solar cells on, on their roofs to, to help get natural renewable energy and reduce the energy costs and, and help the environment. One of the problems, at least in some people's minds, is that it's maybe not aesthetically pleasing to have solar cells on top of your roofs. So actually, Tesla has come up with a, a new roof which looks like regular shingles, but is actually a photovoltaic. And glass is a, a key part of this Tesla roof. And this is just becoming rolled out over the past few years or so. But it's exciting because, you know, you could turn your entire roof into a solar cell and it looks just like a normal roof. Yeah, that's so cool. That's such like a futuristic thing in my mind, right? It, like if I was, I mean, I never watched that what the Jetsons, I think was the name of that cartoon. Like, you know, just like watching some cartoon where they're speculating <laughs> about what the future looks like. I feel like that's one of those things. So yeah. it's, that's really fantastic. <laughs> Great. And so you, you mentioned aesthetics do play a role, at least with these Tesla cars and, you know, other applications as well. How much of a role does being aesthetically pleasing and looking attractive play a role into the glass industry as a whole? I think it plays a more important role than most people realize, and it has played a very important role throughout the history of glass. So uh, man-made glasses have existed for thousands of years, and they have been used both for sort of utilitarian purposes, but also for their beauty. And again, if you go to the Corning Museum of Glass, you can see many of these beautiful ancient glasses and see the evolution of artistic glasses over the centuries. And you know, glass is an intrinsically beautiful material. It's a lustrous material. You can make it any color you want. You can make it transparent. You can make it opaque. You can form it into any shape you want. It's smooth to the touch. It's just, and it, and it lasts over time. It, it doesn't, at least most glasses do not corrode much over time. So it, it is a beautiful material and, and people have, have known that for, for many years. And you know, the, the optical transparency of glass has been a key part of that. So even if it's not overtly a requirement of many products, the fact that glass is aesthetically pleasing does play a role. Glass is it's nice to the touch. It's, it's visually pleasant. It's in addition to having all the, the engineering properties that we want it to have. And uh, I'm hoping that this trend continues because you know, the, the possibilities of glass are, are infinite, both in its chemical design, because it's a non-crystalline material, as well as in the shapes and the colors. So it's only limited by our imaginations. For sure. 
so on vacations and you know even field trips i've been to like several several churches with so many different stained glass artwork and they're absolutely beautiful can you talk about how they were put together even though they were made like thousands of years ago and just like they don't have the technology that we have now uh, sure. So when we consider stained glasses and these stained glass windows in cathedrals, so it does have a practical purpose, right? It has a practical purpose of, of letting light in and, and keeping out the harsh elements of, of the weather and so on. It also has theological purpose in that oftentimes they're depicting religious figures or, or depicting scenes from the Bible, for example. And uh, of course, they're beautiful as well. So it's it's like artistic, it's spiritual, and it's engineering. And the advances of these colored glasses have, that goes back centuries. And the Phoenicians were the, the first people to really understand and master the art of different colored glasses. And actually, they, they kept it a secret for a long time, too. <laughs> um, it, was, it was a priest, a priest named Antonio Neri, who was the first person to publish a book kind of detailing the alchemy of glasses and different colored glasses, if you will. And in this book, his, his love of glass just comes through. But this, this is the first time the, you know, the secrets of glass making had been published, and uh, especially Venetian glasses and different colored glasses. But uh, yeah, that, that uh, Punit is a, a great example of the combination of the aesthetic appeal of glass as well as the, the engineering utility of glass. This has really been a fantastic conversation about, you know, both material science and then, of course, glass, which is just this incredibly ubiquitous material. So I'd like you to bottom line it for us. You know, our listeners at the end of this conversation, what would you like for them to take away from this conversation about the importance of glass in material science and engineering? So glass is one of the most important materials that has enabled modern human civilization. And, and it has transformed civilization in so many ways. And we are still at the beginning. And so there, there are so many more opportunities for developing new glass compositions, for finding new applications of glass. And even though it's a very old material, it is at the cutting edge of material science. And the, the physics that's involved in the chemistry and the engineering and the artistic aspects too. It's, it's at least to me, it's, it's one of the most exciting fields of study. And so I, I hope that this conversation will help people realize the importance and the beauty of glass and the many opportunities that glass will have to continue to have a positive impact on humankind. Thank you so much for coming onto the show. I know we really talked about so many different applications and you're, you're absolutely right. Glass really is everywhere. And I think you really showcased that. So, you know, if our listeners want to reach out to you, what's the best way of doing that? So LinkedIn is great or send me an email, uh, jcm426 at psu.edu. And we can link to your LinkedIn in the show notes below. We really appreciate your time today. Thank you, Puneet, and thank you, Tom. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the It's a Material World podcast. If you enjoyed the show, consider subscribing on your favorite podcast app so you never miss another episode. If you'd like to meet other passionate material scientists and engineers and discuss all things MSE, join our Discord community using the link in the show notes below. If you want to support us and the growth of this podcast, 
Please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and share the show with your friends and family. If you have any feedback, we would love to hear it. We want to grow the show with our community's input, so you can message us via email or any of our social media platforms. The links will be provided in the show notes below. We'll see you soon, and in the meantime, go change the world.